Revelation 13, verse 8, it says this. All who dwell on the earth will worship him, whose names have not been written in the book of life of the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. The, the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Not going to really do an exegesis of that particular verse, although it does bring up some questions. But I wanted to read that verse to you because of that last phrase there. The lamb slain from the foundation of the earth. What this tells us is that God had a plan from the beginning. He had a plan, and he didn't have plan B. He had plan A, the gospel plan, to redeem those in the earth and bring those to him that would be found in him. Mary Jo and I were married one week before Christmas. That's right, December 18th, 1993. And Mary Jo loved the wedding plans and planning a December wedding because every girl looks forward to her wedding day, amen? Yeah. And Mary Jo loved Christmas, loves Christmas. So the combination of that, looking forward to wedding day and Christmas, it was everything all boiled up into one. We decorated the church with Christmas trees from her father's Christmas tree farm that he had on his back 40. <laughs> they had five acres, and on the back, back portion, he had this little Christmas tree farm, and you could go out there and pick a Christmas tree, cut it down, and bring it home. And so we went out there and picked out a bunch of trees for the wedding and to decorate the church, and so the church was just filled with, with Christmas decorations, Christmas trees, and everything. So we got to the wedding day. We had our friend that performed a song for us, our good friend, Lane Smith, who's actually a worship pastor, right? About an hour from here in, in um, Port St. Lucie. And, but he was, uh, lived in Virginia at the time, and he sang a Michael English version of Love Moves in Mysterious Ways. And then at the altar, there was a, a, a twist a plot twist. Uh, someone handed Mary Jo a microphone in the middle of the ceremony, and she sang a song to me, a song that she had written for me for the wedding. For the wedding, right? We need to break that. We need to break that one back out. <laughs> Haven't heard that one in a while, in a long time. We exchanged rings. We gave our solemn pledge to one another. And to this very day, Mary Jo and I remember our wedding day as a great, great day. But it didn't just happen. It just didn't, like, we just didn't show up one day at the church and say, okay, we're here to get married, right? It didn't happen that way. It was the, clim the climax of a process and a plan. It was the climax of a process of dating and courtship and all that, and the plan of actually having a wedding and getting married. Amen? Amen. 
So how did that process start? Well, the first part of the process is, you know, I had to win the heart of Mary Jo. And I did something that maybe, you know, you won't hear about. People won't be talking in 25 years about this. In the first four months of our dating, I wrote Mary Jo 62 letters in four months. To this day, I, I do not know how I did that. <laughs> 62 letters. Can you imagine? I mean, do the math. I mean, that's a lot. That's a letter like every couple of days or something. I don't know. That's, whoo. But I would do it all again. I would write another 62 letters. And then years after our whole dating lives together, I asked her to marry me, and she said yes. And I gave her a ring, a diamond ring. And at the time, that was the most expensive thing I had ever purchased. I mean, I remember how much money that was. I mean, it was... <laughs> I mean, actually, looking back, it still seems like a lot of money. <laughs> I don't know, and I, I don't, okay, I'll, I'll leave diamonds alone. <laughs> I have my pet peeves, but. So, but that, but of course, Mary Jo is worth it, and um, still worth it. Amen? Yes, sure. Then we started planning our wedding. We had to set the date, we had to reserve the church which was not too difficult because my dad was the pastor. <laughs> and then we got the minister because it was my dad. And then we had, Mary Jo had to pick out the dresses. I had to pick out the tuxes. We had to pick, you know, pick out all the music, the flowers, the reception, the getaway in my grandma's Mercedes. She let me, she let us drive away in her car. She trusted us. And it, so it all had to be planned in advance so that it could unfold how we wanted it to. The story of God's universal plan of redemption and restoration is likewise a story of a divine romance and a process and a plan that was laid out from the very beginning of time. His love story includes a wedding day complete with a wedding feast and a life together between God and his people and those who respond to his perfect, unconditional love and his sacrificial gift of eternal life for them. And so God's plan is just that, a plan. He had a plan. God has a plan, and he's orchestrating that plan, and he has orchestrated it exactly according to the plans as he laid them out in advance. And he's still orchestrating that plan. There's still much more of the plan to come to fruition. Amen? Amen. I want to talk to you real briefly about a proof that the Bible is God's word. In the Bible, you have basically what we call prophecy. Prophecy. Prophecy is a proof for the inspiration of the Bible. Some people look at the Bible and they say, how can you believe in the Bible? How can you take that to be God's word? 
Well, there are different evidences for this, and some of them are called internal evidences, some of them are called external evidences, and when you pile up all the evidences, we don't have time to go through all that tonight, but if we did, you'd come away with just an awe of the, the, the Word of God, the Bible that we have, that has been perfectly preserved for us. And one of the internal evidences for the inspiration of Scripture is prophecy. Not just prophecy, but fulfilled prophecy, right? So if something predict, if, if, a, if a book predicted certain things to happen, and you saw those things happening, you'd say, oh, whoa, 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 what about, you know? There was a guy that they brought up, I remember in school, they brought up like Nostradamus, remember, remember that? You know, you'd, you know, and supposedly he predicted all this stuff, but then there was all this confusion about what it was really about. There are, there are so many prophecies that have been fulfilled in Scripture and exactly according to the way that they were laid out, some so specific that, um, and we're going to get into some of those as we look through these next few weeks. You're not going to want to miss these next, like, four or five weeks, amen? Because we're going to be getting into some of the, like, most mind-blowing stuff that like seriously of my my whole study of scripture some of the most mind blowing stuff uh, in scripture and one of those is the fulfillment of the 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 seventy weeks prophecy that's in Daniel nine so so you just literally you don't want to miss this stuff it is really amazing so the so the statement of the prophecy the fulfilled prophecy is then a proof that hey we have a book that is a divine book and in this book is a divine plan, the divine plan of God for his love for mankind. Now, if you're going to understand prophecy, then you need, you need, some, you need some helps. Amen? Mm -hmm. You need some helps. And one of the things that when you look at prophecy, we have to understand is that we have what's called a Greek or Western mindset. And there's, a, there's an understanding that we have as, as being, you know, a part of like what we call Western civilization and, and having a Greek mindset is that we have a particular view of what prophecy is, right? And in a Greek Western uh, mindset, uh, of the uh, understanding of prophecy is that you have a prophecy that, that, prophes uh, that predicts a certain event to happen and then the event happens. And so basically prophecy in the Western Greek mindset is the, 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 the prediction and the fulfillment of an event or a person or, or something along those lines. So it's, it's the, the prediction and the fulfillment. Now, what we have to understand is to really understand biblical prophecy. Now, now, now obviously, there's, there's, there's not, it's not totally, uh, that's not totally foreign to the concept of biblical prophecy. But we do have to understand the setting and the culture uh, that the Bible was written in, and it was not in a Western uh, Greek culture. Uh, um, it was really in an Eastern uh, Hebraic culture, especially when you look at the Old Testament stuff, okay? Eventually, you do have a little bit of the Greek culture come in, um, and, and, and of course, the New Testament being written in Greek. But to understand biblical prophecy, you really have to get into this idea of this Hebraic Eastern mindset. And to understand uh, 
prophecy from a Hebraic Eastern mindset is to understand that prophecy in this mindset is really the laying out of a plan or a pattern and then the unfolding or the fulfillment of that pattern. So we have seen this already as we've gone through this whole series. What you have seen is predict, uh, fulfilled prophecy as God has fulfilled the patterns that were laid down in the Old Testament. So when we talked about the tabernacle, he laid down the pattern of the tabernacle, and then we saw how Jesus fulfilled those patterns exactly from all the, all the uh, components of the tabernacle, the furniture, the, the materials that were used, all those things. And we went through piece by piece. And then, of course, we looked at the, the, the priesthood. And we see the pattern of the priesthood. And we see that, that then that was, again, fulfilled in Jesus and that he fulfilled that pattern. Now, when we come to God's plan, it is no different. We see that God laid out a pattern in the Old Testament that he, and, and, and it's a plan, and he's working that to perfection and will work it to completion. Amen? Amen. So that's what we're looking at uh, over the, these next few weeks. Now, God's plan is specifically revealed in Israel's complete calendar of feasts. So where is the pattern for God's plan? We find it in the feast of Israel, really the feast of Yahweh right? And so God's plan is Israel's calendar. God's plan is Israel's calendar. So if you want to understand God's plan for the world and for his redemption and for the culmination of all things, you've got to understand the feast of Yahweh, the feast of Israel. And these are all found in Leviticus chapter 23. The calendar, God's plan is Israel's calendar. And that calendar was laid out for Israel in Leviticus chapter three or 23. Now, he, God laid out seven feasts in Leviticus 23. Now, those seven feasts were given exact times that they, they were to be celebrated or enjoyed or performed. And those exact times, the, those dates were the calendar and those and that calendar was the catechism. Amen. That calendar was the catechism. In other words, the calendar taught the people what God was like, what he was up to, what he was doing because of all the things that they were instructed to celebrate on those specific dates. So, there's part of it that we miss in that sense, we, we have a calendar and we have like Easter and Christmas and, and whatever. But looking at the calendar of, of Israel is, is an important thing to understand as a Christian uh, because that calendar is still, A, still being fulfilled. Still, there's still stuff to yet be fulfilled. And it teaches us a lot. It is a catechism in that sense. So um, now... So not only do we have the pattern laid out in the feasts of Yahweh in Leviticus 23, there is another pattern that is drawn from in the fulfillment of God's plan. And that is the pattern of what we call the ancient Jewish wedding. The ancient Jewish wedding, 
okay? In the ancient Jewish wedding, you had very specific things uh, that were to take place. And those, the elements of that ancient Jewish wedding uh, are, are part of the pattern of God fulfilling his plan of redemption and the culmination of all things. You say, how? Give me an example. Well, in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul uses that same pattern in his letter to the Ephesians in chapter 5 of Ephesians. I'll throw the verse up on the screen for you. It's Ephesians chapter 5, verse 32. Paul is speaking about marriage, and he's talking about being mutually submitted to one another and wives submitting to husbands and husbands loving wives as Christ loved the church. And he's just throwing down, right, on husbands and wives and marriage and all this thing. And he gets to the end of it and he says this, this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. So he's talking about marriage, but then he says, I, I'm, I, I'm throwing down this thing. What I'm talking about, what I'm really talking about, what this whole thing is really about is a mystery. It's Christ and the church. And what, what is this? It is that you have, uh, that, that God's divine plan is a divine romance, that you have the bridegroom and you have the bride, that Jesus is the bridegroom and the church is the bride. And, and so you have this, ancient Jewish wedding that actually is part of the pattern uh, for the plan of God. Now, I want to briefly walk you through the Jewish, uh, the ancient Jewish wedding, the model. And I first came across this, I was introduced to this by one of the great Bible commentators of all time, Chuck Missler, Okay. And uh, raise your hand if you know Chuck Missler. Okay, great. Yeah, Chuck, Chuck Missler. He's gone on to be with Jesus, but one of the one of the all time greats. Uh, he was he was the CEO of Western Digital. He was on the board of Ford at one point. He was a graduate of the the Naval Academy in Annapolis, and then he got saved and he went on to teach a Bible study at Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa in Costa Mesa, California. He ended up in Idaho and then ended up in New Zealand and, uh, before he passed away. But Chuck Missler uh, really kind of laid this out, explained this, this model of the Jewish wedding. The first stage in the Jewish wedding process is what we call the betrothal, right? You read your, you know, it's Christmas time and you're reading your Christmas passages and you come to that passage where it says that Joseph and Mary were betrothed to one another, right? And you're like, okay, well, what, what? And then the pastor will come out and say, well, you know, briefly just give a little explanation. Well, it's kind of like an engagement, right? But not really, right? And, and so you have this idea of a betrothal in the wedding. And, and so literally the closest thing we have in our modern culture is an engagement, but en engagement like really doesn't do justice to what a betrothal uh, is and what it entails. The Jewish betrothal is the establishment of the marriage covenant. It, it is really the establishment of the marriage covenant. And to establish, establish a marriage covenant, the bridegroom would negotiate what was called the bride price. Okay? So you had this negotiation that would go down. The bridegroom would negotiate 
this is where we, we have this in our history, and this is why there was a there was a, you know dowries and things and, and bride price and all this. Okay, so we we're a long ways away from anything close to you know where where our culture really is. Uh, we got to get people back to actually getting married. Amen. Uh, and and uh, for one thing, but like engagement would be nice, and you know all that too. So, um, but back in the day, you had betrothal, and it was establishing of the covenant. It was a, a uh, negotiation of the bride price uh, that he must pay, um, that the bridegroom must pay, and the, and the marriage covenant was established once this bride price was paid. And so you had the, the, the bride price. Upon paying the price, the bride and groom would con- were considered husband and wife, and the bride was set apart and consecrated exclusively for her bridegroom. And this is, it, this is exactly what the, the Bible teaches us who have come into the church of Jesus Christ, right? When you are a part of the church of Jesus Christ, you are a part of the bride of Christ, amen? That's why um, I've heard people, you know, down through the years that say like, you know, I love Jesus, but I don't like the church. Well, you, 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 you be careful there because Jesus is the bridegroom and the church is the bride and he gave his whole self for the bride. So you got, you're walking on some shaky ground there. We, church has some problems and there's been historically problems from literally day one, okay, with the establishment of the church because it's, you know, human beings involved in the church that Jesus is perfecting. But, uh, but, but, but you, you had a bride price that was paid for the bride. And Paul brings out this point a few times in his teaching in the New Testament, specifically in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 6, verse 19, or the end of 19 and the beginning of 20, and he says this, and you are not your own, for you were bought at a price, with a price, at a price. You were not your own, you were bought at a price. And Christian, we need to really get this into our mindset, amen, today. So far are we from uh, this culturally to even understand the idea of betrothal, but to understand who we are in Christ and that we are a part of the bride and we have been bought with a bride price that was paid in full. Wow. We need to let that sink home and impact our lives and impact uh, you know, who we are in terms of who we are in Christ. And so part of the, uh, the betrothal, the, the Groom and bride drank from a cup of wine, which symbolized the marriage covenant. And then the second part, in the, in the next part of the Jewish wedding model, the bride and groom were then separated. So they were betrothed. They were consi- there was the bride price. All that went down. They were considered like husband and wife, but then they would be separated. The groom, uh, and, and really... What's interesting, well, I'll come, to back, come back to this. The groom left his bride at her home and he returned to his father's home for approximately 12 months. And so the couple married, but chaste and separate, the bride would ready herself for the return of her groom as he had gone away to build a home for them, to build an addition, literally a dwelling place in his father's house. He built a home for himself and his bride to live in. Now, Jesus actually kind of 
just is, is literally using this language and talking about this when he's with the disciples in the upper room right before he went out and was arrested and taken into custody and crucified. He literally said this to his disciples in John chapter 14, verse two. He said this, in my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, listen, I go to prepare a place for you. Now, people have loved <laughs> this verse. In fact, it was the, it was the verse that, that, that caused, you know, many worship songs to be written about, you know, I've got a, I got a mansion over in glory and, you know, I'm going to go get my mansion in heaven and, you know, I hope it's, you know, hope it's nice and, 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 and of course, I've got my, uh, you know, my, my requests in for the, you know, really not a mansion. I really want like a kind of a, a nice top floor condo on the crystal sea. And um, <clears throat> so, you know, God knows what you want. But really, the idea here is the word mansions there is literally the word dwellings. It's the idea that he's going to prepare a dwelling place for you. And specifically, and I believe what Jesus is really talking about, is the dwelling that he has prepared for us is that he's prepared the new spiritual house, the new spiritual tent tabernacle that we're going to have. We're going to have a brand new dwelling. This We're going to be saying goodbye, folks, to, to this whole thing, right? Amen? Amen? Yes. Praise the Lord. Now, some people have, like, you know, pray, some people, when I, you say that, they would have, a, like, a, even a greater shout. You know, some people are like, ah, oh, you know, we're holding it together, you know? You know? Some have been through surgeries. Some have problems, you know, and say, Amen. Going to prepare a place. We're going to get a spiritual body. We're going to get a heavenly body. It's an incredible, incredible thing. So, but Jesus is, is relying on this, this wording of the Jewish model when he's telling the disciples that he's going to prepare a place. And then the last part of the Jewish model, the groom would, would come. Finally, he would come. And he would arrive at, 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 to the bride's home to take her to her new home and life. And usually he arrived at night to surprise his bride. The groom, the best man, you know, just basically the wedding party uh, would, lead, would lead him in a torchlight procession to the bride's home. Up until this time, the bride was just readily expecting the groom. There was a general understanding of when, you know, the general time frame that he would return, but it wasn't like, you know, just, it wasn't exactly like known exactly, you know, just the moment that he was going to arrive, that he was going to arrive. She knew, she knew the general time frame that he would be coming, but she didn't know the exact hour that he would arrive. And isn't this what Paul tells us about the coming of the Lord? In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 2, we'll have it up on the screen for you. He says this, For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Like a thief in the night. Right? The groom's appearance, appearance would be trumpeted with a shout which set forth the timing of her imminent departure with her husband to her new home in her new life. Now, you can already see where this 
is kind of playing out in the plan of Christ, right? He's coming back for his bride. The bride price has been paid. The covenant has been established. He's gone away to prepare a place. We're separated and being sanctified, set apart for the return of our bridegroom. We know generally when he's coming. We know he's coming, but it's going to be at a, at a time when no one knows the day or the hour, right? And, and so I like that verse, though, because it says, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. And I read that, and I was kind of like, well, is, is everybody fully aware of that? I guess if you're reading that, you can become fully aware of it. But I want to ask you tonight, are you fully aware? Are you fully aware that... The, the, the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. After, after the groom would come and he would receive his bride and they would come in and there would be really the, the formal, the formal uh, wedding uh, process and then there would be uh, the, the bride groom would take the bride into, into the wedding chamber, so to speak, and then there would be the consummation of the bride, or the, of the marriage, right? And so then they would come out, and there would be a seven-day feast with all of the wedding guests, all the wedding party outside, and there would be a seven-day uh, feast. Uh, so we're going to get into this when we get into all these things that some of this stuff that yet to come, amen? And uh, so you can kind of just... Keep this stuff in your mind, this idea of the ancient Jewish wedding as kind of a pattern for the fulfillment of God's plan. So you're going to have the Feast of Israel, the Feast of Yahweh in, in Leviticus 23, and you're going to have the Jewish, the ancient Jewish wedding model, both of those things in your mind as we go through uh, these, th this, this calendar and the plan of God. Amen? Yeah. Now, one more thing we want to talk about tonight, and, and then we're going to draw this to a close. Amen? Is I want to go back to the beginning. of The, the verse that we read from the beginning was that, that, that the, Jesus is the lamb that was slain from the foundation of the, of the world, of the earth, right? So you think about, if you just think about what that verse says, okay, so, so God had a plan that the lamb of God would would be slain, and this plan was established from the foundation of the world. So, so back to, like, creation, basically, right? And, and what we learn is that God established signs in the heavens to lay all this out. And if you understand how God created, we go back to creation and him establishing the signs in the heavens that he literally put the plan and the timing of it in the heavens. Amen? So the Bible tells us this. The heavens declare God's glory. They communicate God's plan of redemption and salvation. And so what we don't realize is the heavens literally are communicating and have been communicating God's work, his plan, all of it, the entire thing, both 
and we're looking at it from, we're looking at it kind of from the middle, looking back at everything that he's already fulfilled, already accomplished. And then we're also looking forward to things that still have yet to take place. And we're looking at all those things and whether it's things that in the past or whether things future, we know that God has laid all those things out in the heavens. On the fourth day of creation, this is what it says back in Genesis. Genesis chapter one, verse 14, I'll put it up on the screen. This is a very important verse for our study over the next few weeks, okay? God said, let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to divide the day from night and let them be for signs and seasons and for days and for years. So from the fourth day of creation, here's what this is saying in this verse. You can probably go back to the Genesis series and listen to this, go back to day four, and I'm laying all this out for you that what God is saying here and what he's establishing is, he's saying, let these lights in the firmament, they're going to be here and they're going to do some things. They're going to accomplish a purpose. They're going to be, he says, let them be for signs and seasons and for days and years. Well, what's interesting about that sentence is that most of us sitting here tonight know the, the, the lights in the heavens, and we know them for the last two things. We know them how they mark out days and years. But, but, but today, we're not, as, we're not as knowledgeable, really, of really the first part of that phrase. Let them be for signs and seasons. So let them be for signs and seasons, days and years. So... This is, this is very important, what God is saying all the way back in the creation. He's saying, let the lights be in the firmament of the heavens and let them be for signs and seasons. So from the fourth day of creation, the heavens were to serve as signs to mark seasons. Now, back to the verse that I quoted. I actually kind of quoted it already, but it's here in my notes, and so we'll get there now. Um, sometimes I get ahead of myself, amen? So Psalm 19, verses one, very important scripture to know. It says this, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech and night under night reveals knowledge. Now, wait a second. This is a crazy verse because most of the people, like you can read this, there's a surface level understanding of this. Oh, great. The heavens would declare the glory of God and praise Jesus, right? There's that level. There's very surface level. What this is actually saying is that the heavens and the lights in the firmament are actually showing forth the handiwork of God, is showing forth the great and mighty works of God Almighty, and, and, and literally the plan of redemption. He says, day unto day it utters speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. And so it has to be something greater than simply, hey, God's awesome. Uh, our God is an awesome God. You know, it's got to be more than that. There's something really here. And so what the ancients saw in the stars and understood in the stars, in the, in the, in the, in the revolution of the, of the stars, 
or the revolution of the earth, and depending upon what time frame you lived in, of course, you know, there's different time frames where it was like, you know, it was, well, everybody, you know, at one time the earth was flat, and then it was, we were geocentric in a, in a universe, and then we were heliocentric, and now we're kind of back to flat earth, right? No, no, <laughs> um, no, uh, but, um, but really, you know, depending upon how you look at all that, um, you have, the, the, you have the, uh, the understanding of the lights in the firmament of the heavens. And, and, and really what those are are stars, stars, okay? So you have, what, what do we have up there? We, we, have, a, we have stars, we have, we have the sun and moon is really for like the days and years, right? And then we have the stars and really, and then you say, well, wait, what about the planets, right? We have planets, the ancients understood those to be wandering stars. So you had, the, you had the stationary stars, or you had the fixed stars, and then you had the, the wandering stars, the ones, and those were only wandering to a certain degree. They, they certainly had certain patterns and, 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 and ways that they would move. So they looked up into the, the heavens, and they, they saw the handiwork of God in the heavens, in the firmament, and, and what they saw became known as what, what, how we would know it today is the 12 signs of the zodiac. This is, unfortunately, modern people only know this in the corruption that it, it is, the, the, the zodiac, right? So, and when you think of the zodiac, as soon as you bring up the zodiac, then instantaneously you're talking about the horoscope and what sign were you born under and like, how's that going to affect your day, right? So let me get the newspaper. No, no, no. God laid out these stars. He put those fixed stars into those constellations from the creation. And they, night unto night, they, they utter speech and they declare knowledge. Amen? And so it's really not, you can call it the zodiac if you want to, but I want to give you the Hebrew term. And it's in the Bible. You say, what? The zodiac's in the Bible? Yeah, it's in the Bible, all right? The, the, the term is the term Matzeroth, Matzeroth. And we see this in Job chapter 38. Job 38 is an awesome chapter. Um, but this is, what, this is what God says. Well, let me, let me just say this. God tells, Job is just going through just all of his suffering. He's going through whatever. And he's gone to his friends. Some of his friends have encouraged him. Some of them have said, look, look, you know, what'd you do? you know, to deserve all this. His wife comes to the point, you know, we just curse God and die. So then he, had, he has these conversations with the Lord. And, and, and one particular point in Job 38, there's this conversation where God is literally questioning. It's like a, he's asking about Job's knowledge of the universe. And he's asking him this series of questions. And here's the question, Job 38, verse 32. Can you bring out the Matzeroth in the season? Or can you guide the great bear with his cubs? Can you bring out the Matzeroth in its season? Okay? We didn't get into this. We're going to come back, we're going to come back around full circle to Genesis 1.14. Remember when God said, let them be for signs and seasons. The signs were the signs. The seasons is a word in the Hebrew that actually means appointed times, appointed times. So let, the, let these lights in the heavens be for signs and the appointed times. 
So God is asking Job, can you bring out the Matzeroth in its season? Can you bring the right sign in its season at the appointed time? And then, he, and then he says, can you bring out the great bear with his cubs, right? Which is, which is one of the constellations. The constellation, the great constellations have three, like, lesser constellations, okay? So you don't have just the 12, and I, you know, I guess there's, the, there's a few years ago, there was the 13th one that was trying to, you know, which was, was very interesting, right? When you see all this stuff and you read your headlines and you see stuff like that, you know, just... Bulbs should be going off because it's, 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 it's very interesting, um, all this stuff. So he said, let them be placed in the heavens as signs. Let, 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 me, let me come back to you and give you an example of the signs in the heavens, okay? And the Maseroth, this will bring this home for you. In the book of Revelation, one chapter earlier than the, than the verse we read in chapter 13, there's a verse in chapter 12 where it literally talks about two of the signs in the heavens. He says, I saw a sign in the heaven. John is saying, telling us what he saw. And he says he saw a sign in the heavens. Uh, the, and the woman clothed with the sun and the moon at her feet, right? The woman clothed with sun with the moon at her feet and a garland of 12 stars above her head. Okay, okay. If you were here for, if you were here the night that Michael Heiser was here, how many, how many remember Heiser when he was here? Okay. He brought out, the, he, he actually talked about this, okay? So he talked about how what you have in Revelation 12 is you actually have Virgo and Leo, and you actually have a, 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 a very specific configuration of that exactly when this is taking place. And if you remember from that night, now just, kind of tweak your interest to go back and listen to that study because he basically took this back to the birth of Christ, connected the birth of Christ to the birth of Noah and the, the, the rest of God and the salvation. Okay, so awesome message, all right? But anyway, so in Revelation 12, you have Virgo and Leo and then you have Virgo with in, in a very specific configuration, all right? So let them be for signs and seasons. The word for seasons there again in Genesis chapter 1 verse 14 in the Hebrew is, is a word that means appointed times. So the lights in the heavens were placed there not only for, for the signs, but to mark out the appointed times. So according to these lights in the heavens were the exact times that these feasts were to be celebrated. And, and all this to take place in, in God's plan. And so, so you can see where God has laid this out. Not only, I mean, he just didn't say it and like, okay, Jesus is the Lamb of God and he's gonna come into the world. It wasn't only just that. He laid it out in the creation itself and then he laid it out in his revelation, in his word to his people Israel and then he walked it out specifically according to the pattern that he established in both the heavens and the word, amen? And so really when you look at the love of God and you could write another worship song, right? About the, the love of God laid out in the heavens and the word and lived out perfectly for us in the redemption plan. So 
I want to take you in closing, and this is kind of a setup. So this, this whole night tonight is just a setup for the next, couple, the next few weeks. But I want to take you to Leviticus chapter 23, verse 4. And this is what was commanded. He said, and it'll be up on the screen. These are the feasts of the Lord. These are the feasts of Yahweh. Holy convocations, which you shall proclaim at their appointed times. Okay, so if we read that in English, we'd read that at the, in their season or something. And like no one would understand it, right? But now you understand it. It's not just, oh, in the season. This is this, this, this is the season. Jesus is the reason for the season, right? <laughs> no, the exact season, the exact appointed time, right? These are the feasts of the Lord. These are the feasts of Yahweh. So you have to kind of, a couple things real quick and then we'll end. You always want to say like, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll even make mistakes. And I hear other Bible teachers, commentators who say the feasts of Israel. Oh, wait, wait, wait. The feasts of Yahweh, right? Not the feasts of Israel. They're actually, he, he's very like possessive of these feasts. He doesn't say, oh yeah, I'm giving you some feasts. No, 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 these are my feasts. These are my appointed times. This is my plan. This is what I'm going to do. This is how I'm going to bring my son into the world. And I'm going to give him, and I'm gonna, he's going to pay a price. And he's going to bring a people that will be called by, 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 by my name. And they're going to be called into a family, into a kingdom. They're going to become a part of a bride. They're going to be the bride of Christ. And they're going to be, we're going to be together forever and ever and ever. Amen? Amen? And so the plan of God is a divine romance set up in advance at the foundation of the world and what we should walk away with tonight is just another one of those moments where we stand back and stand in awe and wonder. Like we sang in the song, right? We stand back and just stand in awe and wonder of the majesty of the Lord and the incredible... We talk about the mind of God. I don't know if you ever sit there and try to figure out... Oh, the mind of God. Oh my goodness. He put all this together. But he loves you specifically. And gave himself for you. Amen? Amen. And so, I'll close with this. One of the songs that we sang tonight said, let every heart beat be for you. Right? Let every heart beat be for you. When I understand this, when I understand that he had a plan, when I understand that he put the stars and the planets in motion to, to lay out his plan and his love for us, let, let every heartbeat, let every heartbeat be for you, God, because you first loved us.